Hello and welcome to Forget the Numbers, the CMS Student Podcast. My name is Alan and I'm here today with Connor. Hello everyone. On today's show, we're going to talk about the importance of resilience when you are doing your SEMA exams. In our news stories, we hear about the spoofing trader who made more than $70 million in five years. And then we have our student question. So first of all, when we talk about resilience uh, and doing exams or really anything significant in your life, it's we're really talking about like how to deal with professional adversity nearly when things go wrong and how you react. Um and some people would use the word like bounce back ability, if yeah. that's even a word. <laughs> yeah. I won't check that. Rolls off the tongue. Well, yeah, I won't check that. Or like inner strength or strength of character. You always hear these things. And they're the type of words that when you go for interviews, employment companies yeah. will say, we're looking for it to know about your inner character, your inner strength. It, it's, a, it's a very important thing to do to accept the fact that things aren't going to always go right for you. Yeah. In, before they don't go right for you, if that makes any no, sense. No, it's not really something you can plan to plan to improve necessarily. It's more how you act in the face of something. But it's it's definitely something you build up over time. Um, and yeah, I don't think there's there's anyone who gets through their exams or their working career without some level of adversity that requires some you know level of resilience. Yeah, we have to look of everyday adversity, but that's all right. <laughs> um, but I think it's it's interesting because I think we see a lot of students um, that talk to us and kind of saying, oh, I failed two or three times or I can't keep going or the exams are too hard. And it's really, I think, that negative negative feeling, that negative um, assumption that you're just nearly not good enough, that you're not you're not the right person for doing this. It's kind of, if you go into anything negatively, it's it's a wrong approach because you're, it's probably going to end up only one way a lot of times. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, you're, you're framing what you're seeing in a, in a very particular way. And as soon as you start to frame that negatively, it can bring you down and that affects everything from motivation to, you know, how hard you can work going forward. So I think it's it's really a mindset thing. Mm. And I think for some, it's natural. I think for some, um, for some people, and again, I'll mention sports again later, but I think if you're involved in any sport or competition as a kid, you you maybe get, it's a terrible way to look, you eventually get used to losing. Like whatever sport you play or whatever games you play, or even as a kid, you can't, you don't win everything. And it's how you, re- and you often hear about calling people bad losers because yeah, they yeah. react so badly. And, and like then it just becomes impossible impossible to continue so for some people it's a very it's a natural thing that they do have that um strength or bounce back ability yeah um uh, but and you have to but you do have to work at it either way and i think there's a there's a benefit to that as well because you know it's it's that um losing that that builds competitiveness and you know there of course can be over competitiveness and there can be the bad loser side but it's it's having that not wanting to lose and, you know, building those stakes in, whether it's at sport at a young age. But that can be, you know, a big driver when you get to things like exams because mm. it, it it focuses you because you don't want to lose. And I think you can learn this. I think it's not like some people, oh, I just don't have it in me. I don't think it's not a it's more a, a decision to be positive rather than a. It's not something that's kind of in, it's in my DNA to be a really negative person. Yeah. I, I don't I don't think that's the case. I think it is it can be learned. And I, I think um, especially if if you're if you're somebody who everything's gone right with the first time it happens, 
it's probably a big shock and I think it's the hardest one to get over. But like it, I, I, I heard all through my childhood, there's no substitute for experience and used to hate hearing that. <laughs> but it is, it is kind of true. The more experience you get, good and bad, and hopefully you learn that the good, good outweighs the bad. Yeah. I always think if, if it's... If it's 60, 40, I'm winning. But <laughs> you, and, and accepting the fact that you will make mistakes and things go wrong. And if you accept that, then you can kind of come out the other side. Yeah. And I certainly think something like resilience is is really a decision. You know, yeah. it's it's not you're not necessarily choosing to be resilient, but it's it's choosing how you respond to something you've faced. Um you know, we could get into all sorts of sports cliches of, yeah. you know, it's not about whether you get knocked down. It's, I have it's a big cliche coming. Yeah. It's okay. Don't worry. We'll so, um, but it is what everyone would say in those or, you know, whether it's teams you've lost or people who've let go from job, anything, it's, it's how you respond. And that's the decision. And if you're making those positive decisions about how you respond, that's what resilience is. And, and, you know, then you're suddenly a resilient person. Well, I think that the heart, the, the hardest thing is it's kind of dwelling on your mistakes and without a time machine you can't fix them and it doesn't matter how much learn from them yes so in in a case for an exam if you fail an exam learn from the fact that if you're honest with yourself maybe you didn't study hard enough or maybe you got a bit stressed and maybe you should relax more or your preparation was wrong or you didn't sleep the night before whatever it might be try and fix it but you can't go into the next one focusing on what happened the last time because it's a that becomes a huge distraction and you, and you kind of you end up living you'll just end up reliving that again instead of learning from it and it is difficult to park disappointments and and issues that you've had in the past but it is that's part of resilience is being able to learn from them and park them in the basis that they can never be changed anyway and moving forward so it's more about focusing on what will not let that happen next time I think that's the yeah. key part. It's like it's not worrying about what happened. What did I learn, and how can I make sure that doesn't happen again? And if you have that right motivation, in, in all likelihood, it probably won't. You will learn from that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So a few things about building resilience, and there's, uh, I guess, key tips. And I'm sure if you put resilience into Google, you'll find 15 key tips or seven key tips, yeah. whatever it might be. But I, I thought we'd uh, we'd keep it to three. Um, otherwise, we could be here a very long time. Um, and I think some people will say um, they're corny, um, but I think they they do make a difference. I think the first one is um, is believing in your abilities, believing in the fact that you've got this far, that you've already passed exams, that you can pass exams, that you understand the content, that it's just something to tweak or fix. Yeah, yeah. And I think it comes back to that, you know, positively framing yourself in your head and, and what you're trying to achieve and not giving into the the negative, yeah. uh, focusing on the positive. I think the next one is, and it's a big mistake everybody makes all of the time, whether it's just for exams or in general life, is not asking for help. It's not a resilience. Being resilient doesn't mean you never get help. I think the most resilient people are the ones who have learned to ask for help. And I think it's not a case of of saying I can do this all myself it's it's a case of like asking for help in an exam context is using a provider or going to revision classes or of course using learn signal but those type of things that's help it's it's making that decision that help will be better for you um and going and asking and seeking that yeah help. and I think that's something particularly we're trying to I suppose nearly change the culture of students that I think people get very used to thinking 
you know, when they're in a classroom, they have to sit and be quiet and not show any weakness. Mm. Um, but what we're really finding with our students that's starting to change is on things like our webinars and our tutor support, people are really starting to engage and ask their specific questions, whether it's to do with content or even just I'm struggling with this subject. I don't know where to start. I've just failed an exam, things like that, you know opening up and asking about that. There's lots of good advice we have to give and that can really point you in the right directions to go forward. I think the last one I would recommend is admitting to yourself, even if it's just to yourself, your own strengths and weaknesses. So in the CMA, you could be really good at the OT exams, but failing the case study exams. So maybe the weakness is in your writing style or your time management. But being able to admit that to yourself is kind of, I feel like I'm on a a helpline here, but (laughs) admitting that to yourself is nearly the first step into solving the problem. Yeah. yeah. But if you kind of don't admit, oh, I have a problem in my writing isn't good enough, it isn't strong enough, uh, my time management is really poor, whatever Mm. it might be, even could be a lack of knowledge. Because I do think the knowledge you need to pass an OT exam and the knowledge you need to apply in the case study, even though it's the same subjects, is a very different approach. And maybe it's your way of kind of getting your knowledge from the from your brain to your fingers when you're typing your answers but that can all be overcome but it can't be overcome and we see students all the time i failed my exam it was nothing to do with me yeah. i was badly <laughs> treated the questions were too hard um the examiner had it in for me yeah. i was one of like 60,000 people who did an exam but they're constant they picked me <laughs> yeah no there's a there's definitely a denial element we see sometimes there's yeah. also you know, they say ignorance is bliss in an exam context. It, it is never because yeah. if you're ignoring those things, those mistakes you're continuously making, they just catch up with you when you get your results. And as long as you continue to ignore that. So it's actually, you know, addressing that, as you said, taking a an honest look at strengths and weaknesses. But yeah. that's where you identify, OK, if I really do want this thing, want to get through these I'm going to have to work harder on that or change my approach. And to burst a bubble for everybody listening, you will (laughs) never find perfection. You will always, it doesn't matter how old you are or how good you are at something, you will always have strengths and weaknesses. So like, don't don't see it as a big problem I have now, but it'll go away in years to come. You'll just develop other weaknesses uh, (laughs) that you didn't know you had until you solved, uh, until you got some strengths. So I think ever aiming for perfection is a I think you're just kidding yourself and and because it just doesn't really happen and thinking that somebody um is going to some examiner has treated you unfairly having marked many papers before in lots of different areas as an examiner you want to mark it fairly but you just want to quickly move on to the next paper because it could be a pile of two or three hundred sitting in front of you so the last thing you want to do is figure out the identity of somebody and try and punish them yeah, some way the personal so attacks no believe me I don't think uh, a stra- if you want to talk to an examiner who's marking papers if you look at their resilience it's a it's, lot of resilience yeah, just to get through them it's a lot to be learned from them so I think I'm just going to finish this um, and I am going to bring in a nice little sports thing at the end um, as we tend to do and um, it's an Irish man called Colm O'Connell and people mightn't be familiar with him but he's actually known as the godfather of Kenyan running. And he's somebody for a very long time has been, um, has taught the most famous Kenyan runners and has built the kind of programs with them on teaching them how to run. 
Um, and if you look at him, you wouldn't think for one minute he is a uh, a big runner, <laughs> especially when you look at the, the, the Kenyan team standing behind him. Um, but a few things that he would say and are, the winner is the loser who evaluates themselves correctly. And I think that's the, and it all comes back to, if you have honesty, you will have success. If you're honest with yourself and on your, on your weaknesses and your strengths, you have to also, so your weakness might be, maybe you don't understand all the content, but your strength could be time management and exam technique. And those two combined, if you get enough of that knowledge and work hard in the knowledge, the rest will get you over the line. And don't be afraid to address. It's one thing saying, yeah, I have these five weaknesses. Uh, now that I, now I know I have them, you actually have to do something about them um, and put a plan in place. And a plan in place could be a one-day plan. It could be a one-month plan. But there's no point in, in acknowledging the fact, yes, I have a problem here. And now I've acknowledged it, it'll go away. It will take work. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram for extra content, important news, live streams, study tips, and much more. So, Connor, let's start with our news stories. And um, my one today, I'm going to talk about a case I've kind of been following, and I don't know how high profile it is, on the Hounslow Trader. And this is somebody who actually caused a flash crash in a US stock exchange all by himself, basically under the understanding that he was playing a computer game. Um so he is a self-taught trader and he made um, millions and we're up to like $70 million. <laughs> um, when in 2010, his trading caused a crash in the US stock exchange. And um, I think at one point, uh, initially, they were talking about him getting 200 years prison yeah, sentence yeah. Uh, because it was related to America. He spent four months in the UK prison and then, then sent to America. But what's more interesting is, is actually what's come out what the judgment has said and what's actually happened over the time that I guess those details weren't always there and like the first thing that that came out was actually the that he was suffering from autism or not suffering but he, he had autism and there was that they talked about how he completely cooperated with everybody uh, and the amount of, of work that he did and what I found really interesting was that six months before he was caught he was he informed the authorities that people were cheating on yeah. the exchanges and they didn't do anything about it, which I suppose is, is quite funny. Um, and what he did was he he placed thousands of orders very regularly using a program he built um, in order to on the futures exchange. And then when it comes to actually purchasing them, he'd pull out nearly at the last minute. The demand would go up, so the prices would continue to go up, and he'd be able to offer people those those deals on a slightly cheaper yeah. basis. So it's what's called um, spoof trading, and which is a whole new thing. Which uh, it seems to be that they brought in laws about it after after him. Um, but it was the case that he felt that he was playing a highly sophisticated video game, and he has returned, I think, about six or seven million dollars. But people are going, well, he earned seventy million. What happened that? And to be honest, he got defrauded so he invested yeah. that money into crazy investment schemes and property schemes and, and and lost it all so he is definitely not somebody who was walking away with millions and he ended up being sentenced to um one year kind of at home with with conditions which is very unusual in such a case in the states because it was actually recommended by the prosecutor so it's a very interesting um 
case about how one person can manipulate a market. Yeah. Now, in, he didn't really intend to do what he did. Um, but it's a, just a, an overall, it's a very, very interesting case. Yeah, I've, I found this fascinating. And it was only when you mentioned it to me, I hadn't heard anything. And then um, I'd seen that even the name, the, the Hound of Hounslow was a yeah. reference to the Wolf of Wall Street. Yes. But it's actually very interesting for anyone who'd seen that or followed that story. Really what he was doing, I think, was manipulating the the kind of process of flash trading that those guys were doing. They had these algorithms that, you know, interpreted the mm. numbers in a certain way or tried to drive things up. And he made a variation of that, which took advantage of all those traders, I think. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I thought this was incredibly interesting, but it's amazing to... I suppose to see how the effect that one person and looking at something in a different way can have yeah. on these markets and, and, you know, how much he was able to accumulate without that even being the the kind of end goal. And maybe that's the, the necessary way you need to be looking at it, that there's not the, the stakes of money or in it for the wealth. But um, I, I thought it was really interesting and in how he's gone on to to certainly help them with with kind of you know, sorting out some of the issues that that these markets have and how these traders are are doing it, mm. and and not meaning to do it. No, and no. I think his lawyers described him as childlike, a childlike trusting person who lived off public benefits and spent much of his time in his childhood bedroom, surrounded by computer games and stuffed yeah. animals. And which, I'm I'm sure his you know, I'm but sure he's his an absolute family, mathematical genius. <laughs> yeah, had no idea that at one stage he'd seventy million. So it's yeah, yeah the whole story. I don't story think is he did. Really, no, to no. Be um, but yeah, no, really a fascinating story. So moving on to my story, which is, again, something very topical that's only going to get more topical, but it's how Netflix are faring currently in the streaming wars. Um, so Netflix, I think, have just finished their third quarter. And at the end of 2019, they hit 167 million subscribers, which is kind of an unfathomable number when it's you like think about it. like our podcast numbers. The, yeah, yeah, just shy of it. Um, but what's funny is that, um, you know, they, they've actually missed their new subscription target for the third quarter running. So in terms of their their performance of what they'd planned and, and budgets, they're falling behind. And they've actually addressed these issues to their shareholders with letters alongside um, recent figures. But, you know, they've obviously cited the recent competition from the likes of Disney, Apple, mm. Amazon Prime. Um, and I think said in one of the letters that this industry, which they were the kind of first mover into, is at a very early stage. And there's there's ample room for many of these services to grow. So I think they're starting to to feel the effects of these, what, what's been termed the streaming wars, which I also like the name of. But um, yeah, in, in the other thing they had was, I think during the summer, it was the first time that they actually overall lost customers in the US um, as a whole. So, and alongside that, their share price plummeted. Um, so it is an interesting time. You look at a, a company like that who seem to be so far ahead and so big, but there's suddenly a huge amount of competition coming. And yeah, I, I think, you know, they're feeling the, the people the hot in their heels. <laughs> and and rightly so. And, and and then as a user, you kind of go, well, where does this all end? Do you have to pay for Disney and Netflix and Amazon Prime yeah. and all of these streaming services? And there is a huge demand. And I think, 
you might find people jumping from one provider to another. Oh, there's a great new series here. So yeah, I'll yeah. jump to this or I'll, I'll watch everything I can on Netflix for a month and then or I'll watch everything I can. Or there's mergers or consuming, but yeah. it's all huge companies behind them. It's not like Amazon, yeah. you know, It's not, needs for, it's not four startups. Yeah, 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 Amazon it's, and Netflix don't Amazon, kind of Apple, need each other. Yeah. Disney, you know, it's... So it, I, I wonder where it's going to end and it's kind of, I know over the last few years, Netflix prices have been slightly going, they go yeah. up kind of every year. Um, Apple unusually are cheaper than Netflix, um, and it, it'll be interesting to see because it, it, you would think it's heading for a price war. Yeah, well, what, what's actually the, the other thing that's interesting is, um, you know, what Netflix have said is that even though this is intensifying, their focus is and their vision is what it always has been. I don't know if I necessarily agree, but focusing on quality content. Mm. Um, and I think what they'd noticed is they got caught in a trap of just trying to build this wealth of content, but the quality suffered. And they cited that as one of the reasons in the summer they had a poor offering and they fell down. But now they're, I think with 2020, uh, the number I have is they've $17.3 billion planned for new content, which is crazy that's three billion more than 2019 but in comparison to disney um disney are only spending one billion on yeah. new content now i know they've well, they're just of their own snow white the seven yeah, yeah, yeah. Time. yeah um and it's it goes alongside what we're seeing in terms of awards ne that netflix has 24 oscar nominations this year mm. which is the highest of any studio or distributor so i think you know they're starting to to maybe see that that the way they compete isn't just the the bank of offerings. It's that you're you're churning out really good content and maybe you're getting people to you rather than the cinema. Maybe you're getting new users in with different content. But certainly they're seeing quality as a way to kind of fight off the the other competitors. Try us for free by registering for a basic plan on LearnSignal.com to get everything you need to pass your exams. Okay, so moving on to our student question this week. This is a question which came in from one of our SEMA students. I really struggle to think clearly in the OTs. With only 90 seconds for each question, have you any tips on time management in OTs? Yeah, I think it's a tough one. Um, and especially, I think we've talked in previous podcasts about the scale scoring, so that some questions are intentionally harder than the other. So it's a tough thing to do. Um, but I think there are some rules that you could... Um, build up yourself and get used to. And I think practice is really important. Doing mock exams and practicing these questions is very against the time clock is very important because if you think you have 90 minutes to do 60 questions, so that works out as 90 seconds per question. That's not a long time if you go into a little bit of a dream world about something or if you try to figure out something, um, something different. Um, there is a variety of question types. So some questions require more or less time. Um, so there might be slightly more difficult ones as we've talked about in in the scale scoring, and there might be some that are a little bit easier. Um, but uh, that's hard to gauge. You shouldn't be reading a question and think, oh, that's a hard one. I have two minutes. Or I have two and a half minutes on that one. So it's all about balancing your time. So you should really try and get that 90 minutes. Um, time management is really, really important. Um, so what you want to do is if there's a hint that there's a question is you don't fully understand it, you don't fully get it, move on to the next one. So get through all the questions you can answer it somewhat easily first and then go back and do the ones that you struggled with because at least you have, you know, you have the remaining time to do them. 
And sometimes when you have a big bunch of questions well answered in the bank, the others don't seem so um, terrifying or so difficult because you're relaxed then and your brain is a lot more open. But there will be a video um, on the Learn Signal site in the next week talking about um, the, the best way to approach OT questions. So um, keep an eye out for that. And that will give you great advice for any upcoming exams that you have. Um, so we're going to leave it there for this week. Um, thank you, Connor. Thank you. And we'll talk to you again next week. Bye-bye.